This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Ruthie Bowles. Welcome, Ruthie. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Victoria. I'm really happy to be here. This is going to be a much-needed conversation around the military, and we are both, we're both service members. Please share with us a little bit of your background, and we'll go from there. Okay. Awesome. 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 So yes, I am a veteran. I joined the U.S. Army when I was 18, right out of high school. I traded uh, a scholarship for, (laughs) I traded a scholarship for uh, boot camp, basically. Wow. Um, And they got me because they didn't get me, but um, I was planning on going to school for cultural studies. I hadn't picked my uh, geographic region or culture of specialty ad just at that moment. Um, But they told me like, hey, if learning languages and stuff is what you're interested in, we have jobs for that. And I was like, oh, really? That's interesting. And they're like, yeah, and you can get to go to the California Language School, Defense Language Institute in California, Monterey, beautiful Monterey. And, you know, you get paid, you know, and that's your work for the whole time that you're there. And I was like, that sounds legit. And I don't have to waste a bunch of time on useless classes, like more calculus. (laughs) Useless to me. (laughs) I have yet to use high school calculus. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, so I joined right out of high school. uh, And so I consider myself a very fortunate, I don't want to say lucky because that was my choice to join, but I'm very fortunate millennial in that I do not have any student loans because I opted to join the military instead. You know, I went through California. I was in uh, school for tech or I was in Texas for school and I did some training in Arizona, some training in Washington, D.C., which was fantastic. And then I deployed to Afghanistan. I met my husband in Afghanistan and we had a long distance relationship for a while because he came back before I did. And uh, my first duty station was uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that was where I deployed from, came back. Uh, I was stationed in Georgia after that and then stationed in Texas. And I ended up getting out because just a week before my husband was actually going to relocate to Maryland for a while, for work. And then we were, you know, I was planning on requesting a change of station and going there since I was coming from a a training duty station, they typically give you your next assignment. And I hadn't been assigned to Maryland yet. A week before he left, I found out I was pregnant with our third child. And so I did the math and I was like, Ooh, so I already have two toddlers. And then, then I have the baby and then I'd be here for more time by myself. Yeah, no, I'm not, 
I can't do that. Like not, especially not on a training base in Texas where no, neither of us has any family, no support, no nothing. So um, I was like, yeah, I can't do that. So I separated and I became a stay at home mom for a while. Then we decided to stay in Maryland and we wanted to buy a house. So I went back to work as a federal contractor. Uh, The way we were set up in the company, because we were set up by language, I had no options for promotion or anything really. And so that was incredibly disheartening as like the high achieving person that I am. So then I started to explore alternatives and I started consulting on the side in marketing of all things, Uh, no experience there, but you know, that's what the military taught me is, Hey, you don't know it you can learn it. So that's what I did. Yeah. Right. And so, so that's what I did. I learned it. And, you know, as I got more results for clients, I got more clients. And then uh, I was pregnant with my fourth child and I used my maternity leave to quit my job and grow my business, you know, to a full-time capacity in that three months. And that was in 2018. And here we are still going strong full-time. You know, things look a little different with coronavirus and everything, but one of the driving parts in terms of what we're talking about today, and when you look at that timeline, is that when I got out of boot camp, basic training, and I was in California, I experienced my first uh, sexual assault uh, while I was in California on that training base. And it was somebody I was dating, um, but it was an incredibly unhealthy relationship. And uh, he was very emotionally and uh, mentally manipulative. Um, really good at gaslighting and, you know, all of those things. And then the, right after I got home from deployment, uh, so I was a sergeant at the time. um, And it was, I experienced my second sexual assault. It was the day I got back um, that night uh, in my barracks room. And, you know, it was completely like, I didn't, I barely knew this person. Um, It was a completely different scenario. It was a completely different situation. And uh, so those two things, those two occurrences really had a serious impact on me, of course, Um, as I built up to the, you know, going through the ranks and and getting promoted and then even like on a personal level, my relationships, and then even some of the PTSD I suffer now, which, I mean, some things happened while I was still serving in terms of like the PTSD uh, symptoms that I experienced, but there were some that cropped up later after I became a civilian uh, working in uh on a base where there were a lot of military members so i know we'll get into a lot of that stuff but that is a big overview i'm married we live in maryland as i said i've got three goats 12 chickens 10 ducks and i have four children three boys and my youngest is a girl so we just we've got a lot going on over here oh that's awesome let's go back then in time to that first experience because what many people may not think about as sexual assault within a relationship is that, yes, you can be sexually assaulted in, in a relationship and because no is no. And so take us back to that time and how that changed things for you moving forward. Reflecting on it. I like at the time, like in any time something horrible like that happens, you, you of course, like, wish that it hadn't, you know, because it's horrible. But at the same time, as I mentioned, like the relationship was incredibly manipulative. He was my first relationship since I joined the military. I 
had a long distance like boyfriend from back home and that didn't, you know, that didn't pan out. Imagine that. And, um, you know, coming right out of high school and being so young and he kind of swooped in on the coattails of that emotionally and was able to take advantage of me. And that, that was like, there was no alcohol involved. There was, it was just, I did not want to at that moment. And he did. And uh, people talk about, you know, and this, and this stuff comes up all the time. And for anybody who's listening, keep an eye on how you respond in on like Facebook and social media and stuff, because you are showing survivors who maybe are not comfortable sharing their story yet, that they definitely can't be comfortable with you because people always say things like, well, why didn't you fight him? Why didn't you ask for help? Why didn't you scream? You said you were in the barracks. And the thing was, is that, and thinking back, my brain could not comprehend what was happening to me um, because especially at that age, I think like you're just so very much wrapped up in bad things happen to other people and they don't happen to me. And so, you know, there's fight and there's flight, but there's also freeze. And that's what happened to me. I just could not process what was happening to me while it was happening. And I just couldn't believe it. And even while it was happening, there was just so much shame fighting or running away would mean that other people would know. And I definitely, like, I definitely didn't want that. And so the big thing about that though, is that if that hadn't happened, I might not have been able to break up with him when I did. And even right after, like, just to give you an idea of how emotionally twisted this relationship was, even right after he was acting upset and apologizing and I was comforting him while also trying to simultaneously get him out of my room. Um, But once he was gone, it was kind of like this, this magic spell, at least that that part of it kind of evaporated and disappeared. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can't, I can't be with him anymore. Um, And he stalked me for months after that, you know, I am assuming just like kind of trying to like wake me out and I hadn't reported it. I hadn't told anybody. Um, because again, it was just, there was a lot of shame around it, but my best friend and roommate, uh, we went out to see the dark Knight movie in theaters, um, while we were in California. And when I got back, we were just, I remember, I remember it like so clearly or certain parts. I remember so clearly, uh, like I barely remember the movie, but I remember getting back to my barracks room and taking off my purse and hanging it on my chair. And my roommate and I talking about how good the movie was. I picked up my phone and it vibrated and I remember looking at it, flipping it because it was one of those slidey phones. I was very fancy, slidey phone and looking at it and seeing how was the movie and it was from him. And I'm not talking to him at this point, like we're not communicating. And so either one of his friends told him I was there or he followed me there or something else. Like it was, it was just, it caused me to freeze and chills. And, and so that was the, I was like, okay, I'm going to report it because he's obviously not going to stop. And this is getting even more dangerous and more scary. And so, yeah, so the next day I reported it to a sergeant at my language school and, you know, per the rules, because I told, and I, that was the thing is like, I want this to be an unrestricted report because he shouldn't be allowed to do this to me. So I made sure to tell somebody who was obligated to run it up as an unrestricted report versus telling somebody who was obligated to keep it restricted. 
And so I ran through the whole process that day. I might have chosen to tell him that sergeant earlier in the day if I had known that like it was going to kick everything off the way that it did. But, you know, I got, you know, ended up we have in the military, we've got uh, sexual assault response coordinators, at least that's what they were called at the time, SARCs. And then I was also taken with that person, that woman, I was taken to the criminal investigative division, uh, their office, the CID office. And so he's taking my statement, this officer, and, you know, it's been months now. And he's like, okay, we don't really have any evidence. I was like, well, what if he confessed? And he's like, would he do that? And I was like, if I call him right now, I think he would. And he was like, well, we can record that. And yeah, and then we would use that. And he's like, do you think you can do that? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, because he's been stalking me and I I don't want to live like this anymore. And so uh, I've got the Sark person on one side. She was on my left side um, on the long side of the table. And then the CID officer was sitting on the short side of the table. And I put my phone on speakerphone, lay it on the table. He's got a tape recorder right next to it because we weren't super fancy yet. And so he had a tape recorder right next to it and he's on speakerphone. And so I call him. And, you know, I was like, hey, I got your text message. Um, And so he was just like, yeah, I just really wanted to talk to you. You never respond. And so I just thought that that would get you to respond. And, you know, I'm just really sorry. And I just want to get back together. And I was like, but what you did was horrible. And he was like, I know. And I was, he's like, I know. And I should never have done it. I was like, so you admit it then? I was like, so you admit that you raped me that, that day? And he was like, yeah. He's like, I did. And I'm so sorry. And, you know, I got off the phone with him. I wasn't even really listening anymore after he said, after he confessed and they went and picked him up. And so it seemed like it was in the bag in terms of closure and being over, you know, this part. And the SARC coordinator, she dropped me off back in my barracks room was telling me about all like the, you know, they've got group therapy options and, you know, I could do individual therapy and, you know, she would schedule me for medical testing and all these things. And so she said, she told me she, she would call me and she had some paperwork for me and everything. I was like, okay. And they, and like, and then the CID had gone to pick them up. So I was like, okay, finally, this is over. And it was not, it was not over. <laughs> I never heard from the SART coordinator ever again. Like she disappeared in terms of how I understood things to be. There was never any group therapy or individual therapy or medical testing, which it turned out that I needed because he had given me chlamydia, which I didn't find out until months later. He was picked up by CID, uh, but then, you know, he was released like, you know, pending the investigation. And it was a few months later when I was getting ready to do my language testing and things so I could leave the language school. I mean, he did have a a restraining order, which is hard on a small base. Um, So yeah, so there was a restraining order, but he was pretty good at being present without breaking it. Um, So I was typically the person who left any place where I saw him. So he was still stalking you at the time. In a way, yeah, 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 just, you know, kind of staying out of the bounds and and things like that. And then when I get get close to it's time for me to leave the JAG, that's our, you know, our military judicial officer uh, system. They came back and had my chain of command call me in. And I was like, oh, great. Somebody's about to tell me the results of the case. Great. No, that's not what was happening. They called me back in because CID had stored my recording, which was basically my only piece of evidence as compelling as it was. It was the only piece next to some sort of HVAC unit or air conditioning unit or whatever that malfunctioned and destroyed my tape 
as well as some other people's things. And so JAG said they had to take my statement again in all of its detail. And so I gave it again, not thinking. And then, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, I took it. And then I just, I just wanted to forget about it again because I needed to go take this language test so I could graduate. And it was actually around that time because you're doing processing to get off the base. So part of that is medical. So I did do testing and that was around the time as well that I found out that I had chlamydia. Thankfully it wasn't anything, you know, permanent. Um, and I was able to, you know, get rid of it. Um, it wasn't until I moved on to my next duty station where the JAG office was headquartered for the two bases. It was at the next duty station. I walked past it every day wondering like, man, what happened? What happened? And then a few months I had been in there and I started seeing some of his classmates show up. And I was like, what if I walk past him here? Like nobody has told me what happened, like with my case. So one day I go to the JAG office, go up to the appropriate floor. I sign in and I end up in front of one of the same JAG officers who took my second statement after my evidence was destroyed. And she was incredibly uncomfortable. And she was like, so nobody told you? what happened with your case? Like somebody was supposed to tell you, like, didn't you get contacted by Sark? I'm like, no, I never heard from her ever again. Uh, the day after I, like the day I reported, that was the last time I saw her. So can you please just tell me? And so she, as I said, she was incredibly uncomfortable. And so she told me that because my evidence was destroyed and all they had was my statement, the Air Force had opted to give him a letter of reprimand. So that was the other part where it was confusing was that it was a joint service incident. And so the Air Force was in charge of determining what his punishment was to be, not the Army. And so the Air Force decided, probably based on the merits of the fact that he was such a great airman, because he was, at least on the surface, right? He got a letter of reprimand. And so I left the office feeling just like completely let down. Like I had wished that I had just let him continue to stalk me until we left because that whole process, like, because it was a unrestricted report, even while I was still at the language school, like there were people talking about me and, and all this other stuff. And because he was such a good airman on the outside and he was very charismatic, had a ton of friends. Like, so then now all of his friends hate me. It was really bad. And I regretted reporting for sure. So when it happened the second time, like, I was just like, nope, Y'all are not doing this to me again. And I'm a sergeant now. And I was assaulted by somebody who was one rank lower than me, alcohol involved. And it was the day we got back from deployment. Like I was in more danger in my own barracks room than I was over there. They shot at us. That's true. But the most damage that happened to me was right when I got back home. And so I definitely didn't report that. I was planning, you know, I was, yeah, I just reenlisted. I was changing duty stations in a few months again, and I didn't want to be held up there for this guy who had a lot, a lot of things were in common in terms of him as a person, because he looked like a great soldier on the surface. He was engaged to somebody who lived across the hall from me. He was, you know, getting ready for promotion. You know, he looked the part of a good soldier. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going up against that again. So I did not report it the second time because of that. Like that first experience taught me that nobody was going to help me and that it was just going to be horrible for me. Thank you for sharing, first of all, your story on that. And I'm curious too, and maybe the listeners, were there warning signs for the first time? With um, that? I mean, just the whole relationship was bad. Like, um, like he was really good at guilting me into things and 
making it seem like any emotional hangups that I had were like hurting him. And I'm, I'm an incredibly empathetic person. I, I qualify as a highly sensitive person. And so I'm just, I'm very sensitive to the emotions and what I perceive as the needs of other people. And especially at that age, I was very good <laughs> at subjugating my own needs in favor of taking care of, you know, whoever I considered my people. Now this is fine in reciprocal relationships where the other person is willing to do as much for you as you are for them, whether it's a romantic relationship or a relationship, like a friend relationship. Like my best friend at the time, we're still best friends because we had that type of relationship where I would do anything for her, but she would also do anything for me. And that was fine. But when you're that type of person where you will do anything for someone else and, and empathetically, you're so good at just reading body language and my facial expressions and, and things like that, like you pick up and try to take care of and satisfy whatever, even if they haven't said it and they can hurt you almost as much as if they had, you know, actually struck a blow with a facial expression or a shift in body language because you're so in tune with the people around you. And so the whole relationship was a warning sign because he was that type of person to take advantage. The whole relationship was bad. But the thing is, is it looked great on the surface, like many things, it looked great on the surface. You know, we, we looked like a good couple. We did all the right things. We went to the movies together and we studied together. We went to go eat and we liked to dance. Like on the surface, things looked good. And so the only person who would have been privy to the warning signs probably would have been me, but I just, I wasn't aware. And because of the, the huge culture shock too of joining and basic training. Like you volunteer in the United States, you volunteer, but you're still ripped away from everything, right? Like all the people, uh, as long as you have a healthy home environment, all of the people who love you and, and your friends and, and everything that's familiar, you're ripped away and, and thrown into this thing. And when I went through basic training, they still screamed in your face. So, like, Same. right. Like I remember crying the first day. Cause like, I'm like, I could have been in college and here I am getting dirty and dusty and there's dirt in my eyes and I'm just crying into the dirt because I can't do all these pushups that they want me to do. Like the culture shock was still happening even at the language school. It doesn't wear off because you're still adjusting. And then of course, having the, the relationship with the boyfriend back home go bad, coupled with all of those other things. I was just like a quivering pile of vulnerability in a set of ACUs, the army combat uniform. And like just waiting for somebody to walk by and take advantage. You know, maybe that's something that should be more readily considered, at least in terms of training soldiers, uh, you know, probably very much like college students, um, but with a bit more uh, extremeness, you know, when compared with the college experience in terms of how you're, you know, you're, you're pulled in and, and how you're broken down and built back up. I obviously was not built back up in some of the right places. You know, and basic training is not necessarily meant to give you, you know, emotional resilience and, and understanding, you know, how those types of things can happen to you in relationships. They don't put those up on the quarterly slideshows. Well, one thing, too, the military doesn't take into consideration, and I've spoken about this before on, in other podcasts and things like that, but that they never really do a screening of what's happened to you 
what have you gone through in your life? Um, what are your aces, you know, in, you know, your adverse childhood experiences? Mm-hmm. Um, because the more aces you have, the more susceptible you are to having addiction issues. You're more vulnerable to right. somebody to take advantage of you mm-hmm. when you haven't processed any childhood trauma or anything like that. That's one thing I wish that they would do for people who want to enlist in the military. So thank you for bringing that point up. I think it's very important. And for parents who are listening and their kid wants to join the military, take into consideration, it isn't for everybody. Would you agree? Like, it's not for everybody. It's not. And and even just on the surface, when you look at the number of people who, you know, would fail out or what we would say we, they would recycle, they'd have to do it again. Those are all... Those are all indicators. And and just to be clear, I loved being a soldier. I loved it. And part of what I felt like my mission as a soldier was, was to improve things. So those types of things at least happened less or stopped happening altogether. I had decided that I was going to I was going to retire. I was going to be like that crunchy old sergeant that people just didn't understand why this person doesn't just get out. I wanted to be that person because I wanted to be in long enough to incite real change and to help people and to try and affect some culture change. So for people who want to join or parents who have children who want to join, I like I the person I am right now, I would not be without my experience and my military experience overall was positive. It was. Like I like I said if if I if I hadn't felt like I had to get out when I was pregnant with my third child, I would still be in. But maybe instead I would be, okay, now, you know, Ruthie's master sergeant bowls or something, you know, I wanted to be a command sergeant major and I wanted to make serious changes within what we call the sexual harassment assault response program, SHARP. I wanted to be involved in making serious changes there. So just just to be clear, I, I do love the person that I am right now. And I, again, looking back, like I can't, Now, I can't say I wish those things hadn't happened because I've learned that I was strong enough to bear it. And now I'm in a position where I can talk with people like you openly about it and hopefully give some encouragement and energy and hope to people who aren't yet at a point where they feel comfortable sharing. When something like this happens, you feel incredibly alone and there's just so much shame that you bear that is not your own. And that is the position I'm in now is that I can share. At a minimum, I can share and hope that somebody will hear it who needs to hear it and gives them something, whatever they need, whatever they can extract from my story, I hope that they extract it and they can take what they need from it. And so that is the position I'm in now. And I'm just grateful that I was a strong enough person to be able to bear it and then move forward. I would agree too. Like it, if it wouldn't have been for my military experience, I wouldn't be the person I am today. It was a very positive experience for me as well. I'm just saying for someone who's gone through, you know, sexual trauma or things like that, broken homes, for for a lot of people, it's a way out. They join the military because it's a way out. They're escaping something. And so in those instances, and then you go and you deploy and some people deploy time after time after time. And that's where the mental health crisis within the military Mm -hmm. is what it is 
today. Yeah. And so all of it plays a factor in things that need to change and be addressed. And I think there, I think there's strides being taken in doing so. There, are. there was actually an episode of ABC 2020. I just watched this last weekend. Um, I DVR it. <laughs> DVR a lot of crime shows. Anyway, but it was about Vanessa Guillen and she was a, I believe, a private first class for a promotion um, who had been being sexually harassed by a fellow soldier who was higher ranking than her, I think a sergeant at the time, and ended up being ultimately murdered by him because she was going to report it. And towards the end of the episode, Representative Jackie Spire, Spear, I'm not sure how you say it. Um, she's a U.S. House of Representatives in California. She had said, and I want to share the statistic because I think it's important. Uh, she said that 20,000 service members are sexually assaulted every year. Only 5,000 of them will report it. And of the 5,000, only 500 will go to a court's martial. And only 250 of those 500 will actually be convicted. And she said, what does that tell anyone who's been sexually assaulted? Don't report because you will not receive justice. And I think this is very similar. I mean, this story, and this was at Fort Hood, which mm -hmm. has this story really opened a can of worms on it what did. was happening at Fort Hood. And um, there's a huge internal and external investigation going on yep. right now. But I think, though, that story is one of millions and it's not just the military it's just in general i think in sexual assault you don't report because you're scared because you're intimidated by your offender or mm -hmm. feel shame and her her numbers in terms of who it's happening to like i would even question those right because you can't like we in the military we've got the restricted and unrestricted reports right but then you also have people who don't report at all yep right like my second my second one was not counted why? Because I did not report it at all. And I lived in a, a military barracks. Our floor was male and female. Half the floor was female. So he just walked down the hallway, you know, um, and, and that, that's just it is it is what it is, at least in terms of how things were set up and how vulnerable, you know, a position we were in. But you can't count people who don't report, not necessarily. So even that 20,000, like that's an estimate. That's an S sure, for sure. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's worse because, you know, uh, alcohol, you know, abuse and such runs rampant, especially when you look at the bases who, who deployed time and time again, that the base that I was on, um, where I deployed from, they, they were like 12 months on 12 months off. So they deployed pretty much every other year. And then they just plug you back in. They're like, yeah, okay, you're back now. Don't crash your car or that new motorcycle you just bought, which happens all the time. Well, and you're so young, right? Like you mm -hmm. said, 18. Like, you don't know yourself when you're 18. I think some people, we don't, I like, I, I don't even think I really knew myself until, oh gosh. I'm still learning myself. 35? Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> like, still learning new things about me. It's wonderful. Yeah. So I think it's just like, how can you possibly, it, it is, there's just, is, there's just so much responsibility. First of all, I think that we have when we're in the military, when you wear the uniform and- there's a different culture there for sure. Yeah. Um, how has this impacted you, do you feel, as a parent? So this, uh, my experiences, to be honest, um, anytime, and I, I mean, it's not that anybody has a, a way of knowing, but anytime somebody says that it's easier to raise boys than it is to raise girls, anytime somebody says that, I 
like whether I see it on Facebook, somebody says it out loud, I always reflect on my experiences. Uh, I don't want to say that it's like a trigger exactly because I don't, at least not anymore. Emotionally, I don't like spiral necessarily, uh, but I do, I am a bit more vocal about it now, but I was a girl, right? Young woman who was sexually assaulted twice. I was sexually assaulted by two young men. I have three boys and everybody's like, oh, you finally got your girl. You're going to have to watch out for her. And it's like, that's true. Like, you know, people talk about girls, you know, getting pregnant, but they get pregnant because they have sex with boys, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, oh, well, if your girl goes out, like what if something happens to her? More than likely, if something happens to her and it's of a sexual nature, it's going to be by a boy. Boys are not easier to raise than girls. As much as I don't want my daughter to go out and have something bad happen to her, I do not want my sons to go out and be the bad thing that happens to somebody else's daughter. And so that is something that I always think about anytime that comes up. Like, oh, you're a boy mom, or at least when I was just just a boy mom, it was so easy. I always think of that. And anybody who has sons, like, I think that should be a concern. You have to have those conversations with your children, no matter their gender or what they identify as, because if it's not openly stated, then they're not going to know their options, right? Like if something happens at a high school party or college or something, and nothing was ever openly stated, like, Hey, if this happens to you, this is what we're going to go do. And, you know, we'll talk about options after that, but we at least want to make sure you go to the doctor and, you know, here are some warning signs that maybe somebody is following you or, or anything like, or talk to like, so in my case, it would be talking to for sure to my sons and make sure like, Hey, don't let peer pressure allow you to take advantage of somebody. Like that's not okay. In fact, I better see you keep your friends from trying to take advantage of that person as well. Like it's, it's talking about the entire scenario, not just as if they have the potential for being a victim, but also if they have the potential for being a perpetrator and what that looks like, because as a culture, you know, a dude, and I'm, you know, I'm using this as a, a, a stereotypical setup because anybody can be sexually assaulted, but especially in the military, a, a dude, you know, hooking up with a girl who's had too much to drink. That's a high five moment. College too, especially, right? right? Yeah. Notching yep. the bedpost. Good for you. You got game, you know, ladies, man, that's yep. what that is. That's how they see it. That's how they're taught to see it. It's a display of their masculinity when instead It should be viewed as, hey, you're a perpetrator. You're taking advantage of this person. That's how they need to be taught. And so that is what I feel is my responsibility as a parent is to do that for my children, not to talk to them just as if they only have the potential to be victims. We are human. There's a duality in us for, for great good or for great evil. And it's my job as a parent, I feel, to prepare my children for either to prepare them for the the fact that they may be in a position one day where no, they weren't like following, you know, maybe some stranger from a bar or something. Maybe this is somebody that they go to class with or work with. So no, you weren't like stalking them down the street and hiding in the shadows, but that is not what the vast majority of sexual assault perpetrators look like. They don't look like somebody creeping in the shadows. They look like someone, you know, And we have to be more open in talking about that, especially as individuals in terms we have the power to either, you know, be somebody who steps up for people who are in a vulnerable position or somebody who takes advantage of people in those vulnerable positions. So as a parent, it's something I think about a lot, especially as I look at my kids and my oldest one is nine and my youngest one, she's two and a half. And it's something I think about a lot because I want to 
share my experiences with them, not in such a way that it like scars them necessarily, but I often hold myself up as, hey, this could happen. And if you learn something from my story, whether you know me or you're my child and it's intimate or, or you're my brother or my sister, because I have five siblings, whether whoever you are, if you take something from this story, then great. And that's why I try so hard to openly share it. So even with my kids, it's being very open about, okay, she said she like, so Evelyn, that's my daughter. Sometimes she doesn't want to hug. And the boys get sad. They're like, oh, I'm sad that she doesn't want to hug me. I was like, okay, well, give her a, a few minutes. You know, maybe you can ask her again. But she said no right now. So you, you need to leave it alone. He's like, well, Perfect. she gave me a hug. Yeah, she gave me a hug a few minutes ago. And I was like, okay, but she doesn't want to give you a hug right now. So you need to leave her alone. And then like usually like 30 seconds later, everyone's like, hug, <laughs> you know, but you can't force her. And it's even the same among the boys. Even when they're playing, it's like, okay, well, you know, Cameron says he doesn't want to play anymore right now. You can't just keep roughhousing with him and he doesn't want to play anymore. He said not to touch him anymore, but we were just playing. I don't care. He said he doesn't want to play anymore. No is no. No is no. And if we don't, I I absolutely, I love that this came up because when you don't instill that in your child, when they're young, that no is no. And when I say no, it deserves to be respected. Yeah. That someone will stick up for me if someone isn't listening, right? Will be my advocate for me. How do you ever learn to say no when you're 16, 24, 35, whatever it is, right? Whatever age. Yeah. And that's, that's the big thing. And yeah, we just, we have to make, okay, getting that consent, like that is, we need to make getting consent attractive. Yep. I agree. You know, like having those types of discussions, like, and it's, it's all, I think it's probably a larger conversation, but it's all shrouded in the general sense of shame we have regarding almost anything of a sexual nature, right? So if the very act itself, even when it's among consenting results is shrouded in even a layer of shame, how, like anything that comes after that just has additional shame, Like even, and even for myself, you know, being, uh, you know, in a relationship, I'm married. um, My experiences made it really hard to talk about, you know, certain things, you know, whatever it was that I was, you know, interested in things that I liked, things that I didn't like. It made it hard to, to even, even on the emotional side of the relationship to be comfortable uh, with any type of confrontation, any type of confrontation. Because if I like, then I, after the first time I went through this phase where it was like, well, if I don't say no, then you can't take it from me, right? Whatever it is. If I don't say no, you're not taking it from me. But I I mean, if I, if I give my consent 100% of the time, even if I technically don't want to, I mean, that, that was an internal battle that I had to learn how to, to fight because I was mostly on my own, but yeah, we have to make getting consent and having those types of conversations an incredibly attractive thing. And as my kids get older, it'll be something that we talk about because, you know, just because, you know, our sexual activities are, you know, private, I I want to try and be as clear as possible in terms of the fact that it should not have any shame attached to it. Like we, like we all go to the bathroom. Yes, we shut the door, but is what you're doing in there shameful? No, but we shut the door. And I just, I want that to be a more clear distinction. Like just because I'm shutting the door doesn't mean that it should be, I should be embarrassed. And that's something else I'm hoping to teach my kids is we have, you know, those types of conversations around, you know, anything related to sex. I love that analogy. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And my son is 15 and then I have a 
a 14 year old and almost 12 year old. So yeah, I'm starting to navigate the teen years. (laughs) (laughs) And I just remember how hard it is. You know, you just, you start to remember and think back to when you were a teenager and just how difficult those waters are to navigate. And, and again, too, like with my son, it's, it's showing him, no, this is not how you talk about girls. This is mm-hmm. not how you refer to other, to females or things like that. You know, having that conversation of, of just respect. Mm-hmm. How do you show respect? Like, what does respect look like towards the opposite sex? And yeah. I think that's huge too. I mean, it really comes down to respect. Yeah, for sure. And just kind of normalizing it. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and being very clear. So, you know, I mean, we're careful even about like what the kids watch, like if we're not around and stuff like that, because there's a lot that's slid in under the radar. I realize now in terms of, you know, what I saw on TV or heard on the radio when I was growing up, a lot slid under the radar, a lot did. Um, and, you know, so we have to, we have to keep an eye on that. I mean, and nothing, no system, no person is perfect. We can't, it's not, it's not about trying to keep them in a bubble necessarily. But my biggest thing is that if something happens, I want my kids to feel as if they can come back to me. If, if they're in a situation, I want them to have heard me say how important consent is so many times that they can't help but think about it in any situation that they're in where it comes up. And, um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's what I feel like I can be for my family, for my friends, for my network is just, you know, oh, I don't know anybody that this has happened to. It's like, well, no, no, you know, me, you know, me, and I can tell you with 1000% certainty as mathematically improbable or impossible as that is, that, you know, people, Mm -hmm. they're just not comfortable sharing with you, but you know them. And they are probably way closer than you think they are. They are probably way closer than you you think they are. They could be your aunts. They could be your mom. It could be your dad or your grandparents, your uncles. Like it could be anybody, but because of that shame, they haven't shared with you. And, And symptoms of what we go through pop up so far after. That was something I did want to say because I was so surprised when it came up. But when I became a federal contractor, I started experiencing anxiety anytime I was alone with a service member who was a man or identified as a man who was, you know, had a man appearance and they were in uniform. I started experiencing severe anxiety if I ended up alone with them. And you're thinking like, well, how would you end up alone with them? The place I used to work has a ton of elevators and you might be surprised or not at the number of times you would end up in an elevator with just two people, especially when, you know, traffic isn't high. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't just me and one other person, if it was me and like, you know, if it was like two soldiers or airmen and a sailor or something, and they were in the elevator, I would have to get off the elevator. I could not stay in the elevator with them. Now it was fine for service members that I had gotten to know that were maybe like that I worked with every day. I did not experience that anxiety with them, um, but I still felt a low grade anxiety, you know, in terms of like being alone with them. But I think it happened because I no longer had what I considered my shield, which was my uniform with my name and rank on it because I was a staff sergeant when I got out and I had cultivated this persona that was pretty uh, 
roughshod and and you know would completely like snap on you before asking questions like don't mess with her she will kick in your teeth type of personality and I cultivated it on purpose because you don't mess with the person who you think is going to kick you in the face yeah like so I cultivated that personality on purpose and my uniform and I didn't realize how much how much I had used my uniform as a shield but I did and so when I went back to working in an environment with service members and I was in civilian clothes uh I felt like and I often feel this way about my civilian clothes particularly if I'm on when when we went to events if I was on my way home from an evening event and I was in the dark um when I was at work and you know ended up in those situations my civilian clothes felt like a trap they felt like some sort of flag that said I was prey. Um, and that's something I've had to wrestle with, especially now as an entrepreneur and I would attend events in the evening. I would ask, you know, people to walk me to my car because I was like, I'm wearing a dress right now, which seemed like a really good idea. But now it just feels like it's like, hey, come get me. Here I am. And it saddens me to hear that, but that is a new development as my life has changed and my experience color, my experiences color my perception of, of you know, my day to day, because I never used to feel that way when I was dressed in civilian clothes when I was a service member. But now that I, civilian clothes are what I wear all the time, that is something that I, you know, I started going through. And so uh, being an entrepreneur now, I don't really have to worry about running into service members, but that is something I reflect on as in my time as a federal contractor. Like I, being in an elevator with a service member was something I could not tolerate if I did not know them. And there were two parts of me. One side of my brain is like, that's pretty horrible that there's a part of you that just assumes that this person could attack you. And it's like, that's true but I also didn't think the two people who actually did attack me would. Yep. So I just get off the elevator and I, I, I'm not sure how else things will pop up, but um, you know, I'm actually going through the process right now of uh, filing a VA claim. So we will see um, in terms of how they're able to evaluate my PTSD and anxiety and things, what will come from that. And because this is a newer experience for me, I've never gone through the VA claims process before. Um, I am not as positive, like I'm not experiencing as much positive energy regarding it because with this specific occurrence and the subsequent things that have happened since, I've been taught over and over that the system is not to be relied on. The system is not to be trusted. And so while I want this to work out, I want the VA to look at me. And I guess that's the problem is I want the VA to look at me and acknowledge you went through these things and they were horrible and you are suffering as a result of these things. And so we will be able to, you know, give you these benefits, whatever they are. The fear, of course, is that it'll be just like what happened to 19 year old me. And it will be, yeah, no, that's not bad enough. Like or, a victimization again. Right. Like, or did that even happen? Like, did it happen the way that you remember it? Because this, this here, this doesn't sound very bad at all. Um, well, and look how much time has passed. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I got out in 2015. So it's like, well, why didn't you file then? Even though there's no statute of limitations on when you can file your VA claim, 
FYI. So yeah, so it's just, uh, so we'll see what happens. But my, my fear now is that, of course, the, the process will dig deep into my case, my reported case at least, and um, come up with nothing. Right. Like I never saw the Sark person again. I never heard from CID. There was a letter of reprimand, which probably got lost somewhere. I am afraid that they will have nothing to find. I thought of a question and I actually thought of it, too, as I watched that ABC special. But being in the military, I I don't even know the answer to this. So maybe you do. But um, what would have stopped you from reporting him as like on the civilian side? Like, could you could it not have been? Like, is there something to it that the military is almost like its own institution in that way when it comes to criminal acts? Like, why is it that you couldn't have reported the first incident to your local police department versus going through the military chain? Um, I think the military ends up with jurisdiction. Okay. I think at least that's the way it's kind of always that I've always understood it. Um, and that could be uh, accidental or purposeful uh, misunderstanding that was, you know, cultivated during my time in. But it's it's my understanding because we have our own, technically, we have our own, uh, you know, law type structure um, that unless you go out and do something like like a, a soldier who's out there, you know, drinking and driving. Yeah, they're getting arrested. They're getting arrested. And I mean, it's incredibly likely, though, that if uh, a chain of command is like, hey, police department, uh, we're actually going to give them to the MPs. And I know that most civilians feel like our military police and, and structure and our law and stuff is actually more harsh than theirs. So they probably happily hand them over. But, you know, if you're out on the town and you're speeding, you will get a regular person ticket, <laughs> you know, but if you're on base, you will get a ticket from the police on base. Um, so I think that if what I had gone through had been perpetrated by a civilian, that probably would have exclusively, like that would have immediately been under the civilian police because yes, I am a soldier, but the perpetrator, right, is, and then vice versa. If the perpetrator is military and the victim, the survivor is a uh, civilian, then that again, that again, probably becomes a question of jurisdiction. Um, but the civilian police would certainly be involved, um, whether they work things out, you know, with the military side or not. But we were both service members. Now, again, I could be wrong. But one of the things they teach you, though, is like that faith in the military, that faith in the system, uh, filing some type of complaint or report uh, to the local PD uh, never even crossed my mind. And once everything, you know, was over, I just, I was tired. I was tired and I was let down and I wanted to forget it as much as was possible, but it's not, it's not possible. There are days I go without thinking about it. That's true now, but I'm never going to forget it. It's never not going to have an impact on me. The one thing I can say is that as time goes on, I've been changing the type of impact that it has on me. So it does not damage me to talk about it with you. It does not damage me to talk about it with anybody. I may feel a little withdrawn later. So I may curl up with like a book or something. Um, just to kind of emotionally unplug a little bit. But when I was still serving and we had our quarterly sexual harassment and assault training, like the programs that they would put us through in terms of like the, the training, I would be emotionally upset for like a day or two. I would, I, would, I would warn my husband ahead of time. I'd be like, hey, 
we're doing sharp training today. And he's like, okay. Okay. And he would know I would come home. Like I just, I would need to eat. I would not want to talk because I would just get so angry. I would get so angry at those. Every slide that went by, they would be like, do this. And I'm like, yeah, so nobody can help you. Screw you mm. too. You know, so it just made me so mad sitting through those trainings. Like, I just, I can't, be- like, I can't believe you guys make me sit through this because you're just lying. Like, I would just get so mad and I was very angry about it and hurt. And that doesn't happen anymore. And I think it's because I've started to, well, I started to view my experience not as something I don't view it as something that happened to me anymore so much as I view it as something that I can use to help other people just in the telling of it. And once I started viewing it that way, and it's now a teaching tool, as horrible as it was, it's a teaching tool now. And so it hurts me. It doesn't hurt me at all to share it. And then I just need some time to kind of like emotionally recharge. What is one thing that you found most unhelpful to you as you're going through as it as it really kind of came to a head in your life both those both of those experiences the thing was that was definitely the most unhelpful was trying to figure out what I could have done differently I'm a big believer in you know taking ownership and responsibility for things and so I was raised that way but I was applying it wrong I was trying to figure out how I could have changed what happened to me, not including in my analysis that I had absolutely no control over their choices. I had no control over them, what they thought, what they felt, what they decided to do. I had no control over that. And I kept plaguing myself with that question. The same question that other people, well, what were you wearing and all these things, right? Like, what could you have done to keep yourself from being assaulted? Like, what could I have done? Especially the second time, because it was like, I just, I just let an F-bomb go because I was about to drop one, but, but it was like, what the heck? Like a second time, really? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing that it would happen to you a second time? Those types of questions were incredibly unhelpful. They did a lot of damage as well because it just mentally turns and turns and turns. I had no control over them and what they chose to do. I only had control over me. So as a result, like those experiences definitely influenced choices I made after, right? But those are the only things that I could control. And then, you know, I had to be a little careful of going too far to the left in terms of reacting too far to the left or right in terms of reacting as a result of that. And that was, you know, that was another struggle that I had as I grew older and was able to view those experiences uh, in a different light. And help that shame fade away with more empowerment, right? Yes. Yes. What is one tip that you would give someone listening today who has been sexually assaulted, military or otherwise? So I know that it's not necessarily for everybody in terms of the way that I've shared my story, but I did not start out sharing my story in interviews and things like that. I started out sharing just the one sentence with a friend, my best friend who was with me the day that I went and saw that movie. And I told her, I was like, you know, that person. She's like, yeah, it's like he raped me. And that was all I shared at first. It was just the one sentence. Of course, the 
the other thing that you can control in that instance is that you want to be careful about who you share it with, because what you want is somebody who is open to listen and receive your story and not somebody who's immediately going to interview and quiz you. Like, I think after I shared it with her the first time, we just had a cup of tea, mm. you know, cause that's just the way that we were. But there, even like I said, like, it's not, it's not about getting on and interviews and things like that. Like that is the way that I've chosen to use my story. But if you can share it with somebody and receive maybe some of the compassion that you haven't been able to extend to yourself. That was something that helped me a lot initially because I felt like I was able to tell somebody and unlike the army and unlike that guy's friends and and stuff, that was somebody who completely validated what I had experienced and I felt safe and, and comfortable. And that like being able to do that is probably a huge reason why I'm able to be vulnerable at all versus, you know, completely shutting down and, and not being able to even have healthy relationships. Grief recovery. We call those special people in our lives, a heart with ears. Oh, someone, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Someone who won't um, criticize, analyze, or judge and can just sit with you. Yeah. I love that, that you said that you just had a cup of tea. I, yeah, I love that, that she was there for you, for you in that time. So ways that others supported you that you found most helpful, well, you just kind of mentioned, you know, your friend that just sat with you. What are other things that you can think of to share that might be helpful? You know, I... How about your husband? Yeah. How your husband supported you and your immediate family. How about that? So in terms of my husband, that is actually, that was a close one Um, because after the second time, the second assault, uh, you know, I was home and he asked me to marry him. We were just dating at the time and he asked me to marry him. And I said, yes, but that second time was so new and there was a lot just kind of shrouded in mystery. And I hadn't told him because I was afraid Uh, because being in the culture, I felt like it was very easy for him to either see it my way or be like no you cheated on me like there's alcohol involved and and whatever and he demonstrated the power that somebody else could have if they have enough knowledge to help you because we we almost broke up like after he asked me to marry him we almost broke up because of the way that I was behaving and stuff he was positive he was like you're not you're not on board with this the way that I'm on board with this. Something's going on. There's something you're not telling me. And I'm like, no, of course I'm lying. I'm like, no, you, I, there's nothing I'm keeping from you. It's fine. And he's like, then why are you acting like this? And I'm like, it's fine. It was not fine. And I think he was probably like a hair's breath away from being like, look, we're not, we're not getting married. We're not together. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but I can't do this anymore. And we were in a hotel room because we were in Virginia visiting with my grandparents. We were sitting in bed. He had gone through my phone and found something I can't remember. And he's like, what is going on? And I, I sat there and I just knew, I was like, if I say that nothing's happening and everything's fine one more time, he's going to leave. Am I okay with him leaving? And I just, I was not okay with that. And so I just, I, it was a short synopsis, very short. I just told him, you know, the day that we got back from Afghanistan, 
one of the soldiers in the barracks, he came into my room after I'd had a couple of wine coolers that I way overestimated my tolerance for being just freshly back from Afghanistan. And he raped me. And then I got up without another word and went and took a shower because my skin was crawling. And then I came out and he was still just sitting on the bed looking devastated. And then we just laid there for a while. And it was, it was still hard after that, right? Because I still had a lot of things, you know, to work through. And I mean, he's four years older than me. So, I mean, I was young and, and he was a little bit older, but not that much older. And I don't think it really matters what age you are when somebody tells you something like that. It's still very shocking. But we were able to move on after that, you know? And he knew like what I didn't, like I didn't give him the nitty details or anything at that time, because I wasn't capable of sharing that yet. But over time, I was able to just, you know, kind of reveal everything and, and share it with him and, and just explain everything that happened, you know, he, you know, because one of the things that happened was I got new friends, right, as soon as we got back, and we were long distance, he's like, who are these people, you know, and they were people I felt safe with, is what it was. And so that was part of it. And so yeah, so it's just it was he was incredibly supportive and, and, you know, in terms of like our relationship, he got really good at looking for when I was hiding my wants and needs and he would push me and be like, no, come on. What do you really want here? Like what, what is really, like, I can tell there's something bothering you. Just go ahead and, and tell me like, don't, he's like, I'll, if you want to leave it alone for right now, we can leave it alone and we'll talk about it later, but we do need to talk about it. You know? So he got good at seeing when I was hiding because I got good at that. And that was just really important for our relationship and for our family, because the depth of our relationship now is completely different and, and just deeper than it was, you know, in the beginning. And I think that that is something that I needed, right? Like I have one person in the whole world that I can be that deep with, and I can be that vulnerable with to share every detail and everything. And that was something that I needed that I think unconsciously, I didn't even realize it, but I thought that I was never going to be able to have. So my question too now is when you weren't talking about it, what were some of the characteristics? So let's say you're in a friendship. Let's say I have a friend or my friend group or whatever. And what are some characteristics of someone who has been assaulted like what are some characteristics that you would think someone would exhibit who has been sexually assaulted that someone like you know if you're not feeling like talking about it sometimes you just want someone to ask you what's wrong or you know what's going on or but so some people think like so one of the big ones especially when I after the first one and I was so much younger you know I was 19 20 ish um 18 19 was when it happened and so it rippled through my early 20s and I, arguably the second one happened still in my early 20s so it just was not a very good late teens early 20s for me so a lot of people think that if you are sexually assaulted then you would not want to have sex at all anymore Right. And that is actually not necessarily true for everyone. Um, For myself, at least uh, after that happened and there was probably like a refractory period where I was just like, this is all overwhelming. I don't want to like everybody get away from me. Once I got to the new duty station, I, I was at that duty station for like six 
months. And I think I must have had like, I mean, for me, it was a lot, but it was probably like five guys that I dated in sequential order, not concurrently, but like I dated. And because we were dating, like as soon as they were like, yeah, you want to go to home base? It was, I was in that position where I was like, well, if I say yes, then they can't take it. So I said, yes. Right. I think that was something my roommate picked up on was kind of like, hey, uh, not judging exactly, but your patterns of behavior are a bit different than they used to be. Like the whole time I was at the language school, which was like a year, I was with my boyfriend long distance and then that one guy, you know, and then we get to a new base and I'm running through them like water. <laughs> so it was a very serious change in behavior and the reason why like I said it was if I if I'm not saying no then you can't take it and then it also kind of having them as like you know dating them and them you know being boyfriends or whatever it kind of helped protect me in terms of I could always say well I have a boyfriend I have a boyfriend instead of saying actually I just don't like you and then having somebody get offended and then you know attack me or something later changes in behavior are probably a pretty big one and then um to be honest gaslighting like if, if you're sensing that there is a change in behavior, a change in attitude or something with somebody, and they're insisting that you're crazy for it, there's probably something going on. Because I was good at that too. I mean, I had a very horrible, good teacher, but you know, people would be like, oh, you're acting really different. Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. You've been acting different though. You just completely turn it around, like, or, or maybe not even gaslighting, but you bring up them and then they ask you about something about you. Like maybe last week you were complaining about your boyfriend or your girlfriend and they, then you ask about them and they're like, no, yeah, I'm totally fine. But what was going on with, you know, you and Stacy or, you know, you and John, like what happened? And then now all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, that happened. And you're completely distracted now. So they become really good at misdirection. And so if you are worried about somebody, you're going to have to be gentle but focused. You're going to have to be gentle, but focused. And you're also going to have to realize that it may take you more than one try because that's the other thing. Like, are you just, just testing me? Like, are you just trying or like, are you in it to win it? Are you actually in this with me? Are you ready to hear what it is that I could tell you if I choose to? Now, if you're just like, oh, are you okay? And then you believe me when I say that I'm fine. Okay. Well, you obviously weren't ready to hear it. But I mean, in a way, that's kind of what happened with my husband when we were engaged, right? Like he kept insisting something was wrong. And I was like, nope, you're not ready for this. <laughs> you're not ready for this. And so I just kept insisting and he kept trying and he kept trying and he kept trying. And then it just reached a point where I was not okay with him walking away because he had tried so many times. And that I, you know, it was just that I, ha I was afraid of telling him. So it, it got to a point where I was positive. He was going to walk away. Either he was going to walk away because I didn't tell him. Or he was going to walk away because he didn't believe me. And in such case, I probably shouldn't be with him. Or he was going to hear what I had to say and he was going to believe me. So in those three scenarios, two of them, he was walking away anyway. So at that point, I'd reached a point where I just felt like I, I didn't really have much left to lose in terms of him and that our relationship. But that's that's the big thing. You want to be gentle, but you want to be focused because your first attempts at trying to get them to confide in you will probably fail they will probably fail unless you catch them at just the right moment. But if they've had time to kind of fortify and that shame to kind of, you know, weave into their barriers and things, it's probably going to take you more than one, one try. And it, it's not a reflection on how much they like you or love you or anything like that, but you are literally wrestling 
with this monster and you just can't do anything else. Like I don't have, I don't have the space to trust you right now because I am wrestling with this inside of me. And, you know, you're going to have to knock on this door more than once because I am fighting so hard here and I'm exhausted. And, you know, the first few times that you try, I just can't open that door. I can't do it. Because how do I know you're not going to come inside and transform into another monster that I have to deal with? I have to now, then I have to wrestle with the assault and your rejection, you know, and you saying that it was my fault or I could have worn something else or not gone out that late. Then I have to wrestle with both of those things. So that's why I think sometimes it it takes more than one try. Like you would think if you've never gone through anything traumatic like that, that's so tied up in the shame as well. You would think, well, why don't you just tell me? You tell me everything. It's like, well, I've never had anything like this to tell you before. So you got to be gentle. You got to be focused. And you just got to be in it for the long haul. Because them telling you is definitely not, like that might be one of the hardest things that you are able to do initially in terms of getting them to confide in you. But the, the battle, you know, isn't over for that person. It's grief that never goes away. It just changes. Yeah. And so, and, and with grievers, you know, just, this is what we say too. Like, if you want to be a heart with ears, you just show your support, let them know you're there. And when they're ready, you'll know. They'll let you know, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruthie. Is there anything else that you would like to share today? I just, I want to say thank you for you know building the platform that you've built um the topics that you touch on that you dive deep on here are not topics that people consider for everyday consumption but um but they are topics that some that somebody somewhere is going through every day you know and you know, this is one piece of the story that I've shared, but we all go through a variety of different things. And this experience does not define my identity by any stretch of the imagination, but it does help so much to share. And I know that you're helping a lot of people by addressing these topics that people are like, oh, that's not polite conversation or that's too heavy. And it's like, okay, well, this is something that we're walking around with every day. You are surrounded by people who have things that are too heavy every day. So just thank you so much for opening the floor for, you know, these types of conversations. Thank you for sharing that with me. It means a lot. Um, yeah, my why is pretty big <laughs> uh, for this podcast. So, um, but it's because of beautiful souls like you who are willing to share your story. And I'm just being a heart with ears and hoping that the messages that the Harding Hearts share with others, bring hope. There is hope. There's hope to have a beautiful life, have a beautiful marriage, children, all the good things that life can give us, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Ruthie. Um, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Looking me up on social media is probably a good place to start. Ruthie Bowles, um, in terms of what I do professionally, uh, defy the status quo. If you're in search of any uh, personal branding and marketing information, but yeah, those those are probably the best places to reach me. I am very easily found a Google search will actually also help you find me. 
uh, very easily. Awesome. And I'll put the information in the show notes as well. Thank you listeners for tuning in to Ruthie's story today. I hope it helps you or someone you love. Until next time, take care, much love. And when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.